Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's Insight Assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. It's the weeds. I'm Jonathan Hill. And as you can probably tell by my voice, I came down with a little cold over the weekend, which meant that I spent most of it on my couch. And in between spoonfuls of chicken noodle soup and binging the new season of Love is Blind, which, by the way, is a mess, I kept my eyes on another mess happening much closer to home. The real housewives of the hill, if you will. House Republican infighting, though, has stalled spending bills from making it across the finish line. Lawmakers on Capitol Hill are running out of time to avert a government shutdown. A stopgap bill to fund the government has failed in the House. A government shutdown seemed like a sure thing. Until it wasn't. Just a short time ago, the Senate approved a bill to keep the government funded for 45 days. And let me tell you, the drama has continued into this week. Back here in Washington, Kevin McCarthy is fighting to keep his job. The Office of Speaker of the House of the United States House of Representatives is hereby declared vacant. And while this political theater has been huge, I promise you, the catalyst is a much bigger deal. The good news is, the government won't be shutting down, at least not before November 17th. But this is not a new song and dance. It feels like we toy with this idea of government shutdown at least once a fiscal year, and sometimes we cross that line. I've experienced three shutdowns in my nearly 15 years as a D.C. resident. For me, it was mostly an annoyance. Like back in 2013, the panda cam at the zoo was turned off right after a new cub was born. I have to admit, I was bummed. I feel like I missed Bao Bao's milestones. And then the city had overflowing trash. And the only reason it didn't really pile up is because the mayor at the time deemed all DC government business as essential. But these shutdowns impact more than the ability to look at cute baby animals and encourage home rule loopholes. I've known this, but I saw it firsthand during the last shutdown. That one was the longest we've had to date and people missed multiple paychecks. It was the end of 2018 and I was doing some preliminary reporting for another podcast I hosted called Through the Cracks. I was talking to some parents at a motel in DC that doubled as a family shelter. I asked one mom what brought her there. She told me it was the shutdown. She worked as a security guard at one of the Smithsonian's and wasn't getting paid, so she couldn't make rent, and she and her child ended up in a shelter. These shutdowns have real consequences for real people. 
Even the threat of a shutdown is destabilizing for folks and is a drain on government resources. And while it's great that we averted a shutdown this time, I'm not all that confident we won't find ourselves right back here in November. Today on The Weeds, why do we keep doing this? And is there a better way? To answer these questions, I made a call. My name is Molly Reynolds. I'm a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution, where I study the U.S. Congress. There's a lot to get into here, but I want to start with some of the basics. First, let's break down the different parts of federal funding. What exactly are we talking about when we talk about funding and we talk about shutdowns? So there are two types of spending that the federal government engages in. One of them, and this is the one that we're not talking about when we talk about a shutdown, is called mandatory spending. And that's spending where when the government writes the law that authorizes a new program, that same law also requires certain payments to be made. Usually that's because those payments are based on eligibility criteria. So like Medicare is a really good example of mandatory spending. When Congress created Medicare, they said, these are the people who are eligible for this particular health insurance program. When they wrote that law, they said, okay, based on that eligibility, we have to push that money out the door to actually pay for when your parents or grandparents go to the doctor. That kind of spending keeps flowing every year, whether or not Congress takes action. What we are talking about when we talk about a shutdown is what's called discretionary spending. And that is spending where the amount of funding to provide for a particular program is made through the annual appropriations process. And that is spending where if Congress doesn't take action every year, the Treasury can't cut those checks. They can't make the payments under that program. And that's the kind of spending that when there is a shutdown, that is affected. I'm glad you brought up the appropriations bills because Congress tends to do this through 12 appropriations bills. What are those and why do we do it that way? So the basic idea is that conceptually, funding the government is really important. It's one of Congress's core responsibilities. We want to make sure that different parts of the Congress, different uh, subcommittees of the appropriations committees are really digging in and specializing in particular areas of the federal budget. Um, and so we want to sort of break it up and give the ability of one set of members to specialize in the defense budget and one set of members to specialize in the budget for the departments of labor, health and human services and education. Um, one set of budget members to specialize in the budget for the VA. So we want to really encourage like specialization and the development of expertise among members of Congress. So that's why Congress has historically broken up the appropriations process into these 12 separate bills. It hasn't always been 12. That's not like some magic constitutional number. That's the number that we have right now. And so the idea is, it, again, allows specialization, allows members who are voting on these bills on the floor to like really dig into what's in them um, and make the most responsible decisions possible about funding for different priorities on an annual basis. So a phrase we're hearing over and over again in the coverage of this is that of the continuing resolution. There's also another piece of legislation that funding gets wrapped up in, and that's the omnibus. I remember when I was a little baby producer on the Hill, 
uh, hearing about the Cromnibus, which, you know, <laughs> which wow, is a, what a throwback. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, that was like a hybrid of those two things. It was like the cronut of congressional funding. Yeah, except not, the only way not nearly it. as delicious. Um, <laughs> so maybe I'll start with the omnibus. The omnibus is basically instead of doing those 12 bills separately, or maybe Congress has done one or two of them separately, but has left the rest of them undone um, or unfinished, it's the process of packaging all of those bills together into one big bill. And so you could think of this like a train and like there's a train car that has defense spending and there's a train car that has VA spending and there's a train car that is spending for interior and the environment. And when you have an omnibus, you put all of those cars together in one train instead of sending them out individually. The continuing resolution is what we call a temporary measure that basically keeps the government running at usually the same spending levels as the previous year to buy Congress more time to actually write those individual appropriations bills, whether they get passed on their own or together in that big combined omnibus train. And a continuing resolution is what Congress passed and also what President Biden signed on Saturday night. And it averted a shutdown for 45 days. So what happens now? So in one sense, we get to do this all over again in a little over 45 days. It goes until November 17th, which I think is like 47 or 48 days, depending on how you count, which it turns out is like a harder thing for Congress to do than you would expect. (laughs) So we'll get to the middle of November and Congress will need to take action again to keep the government open, much like it needed to um, before Saturday night. One question is whether anything changes between now and then. It's possible, I don't know it's terribly likely, but it's possible that Congress does finish action on one or more of those standalone appropriations bills um, that it's been debating. Um, If that happened, that would just mean that any shutdown that happened in mid-November would be a little bit smaller, Mm. uh, would not affect all federal agencies in the way one would have if it had come to pass over the weekend. Um, But yeah, basically, it just buys Congress more time to try and reach either deals on individual spending bills or a global deal on all of them together or an agreement to just kick the can down the road a little bit more, perhaps maybe closer to Christmas. I was going to say, why that 40-some-odd days? Like, why that specific amount of time? So it takes us not quite to Thanksgiving, but close to Thanksgiving. And Congress sort of works best with some kind of hard deadline. And so it may well be that they were thinking, okay, like, people wanting to go home for Thanksgiving will be a good action-forcing mechanism. Often uh, in recent years, we've seen these continuing resolutions that get passed at the end of September run all the way into December. That has become kind of a stalking horse among Republicans who don't like continuing resolutions. There's been a lot of rhetoric around, oh, we don't like to get jammed by the holidays. Like, we don't like it to get jammed by Christmas. We hate it when when we're forced to vote yes or no on something just because we want to go home for Christmas. So I wouldn't put it past Congress to have moved it into November because 
they wanted to get out, at least initially, of that Christmas trap. Um, this may seem sort of trivial, but like this stuff can matter. Um, it may also just have been that 45 days or 47 days or whatever we're talking about was the best that they could do, um, was that there were, you know, some people who wanted nothing or a shorter period of time. There were some people who wanted longer. And then mid-November seemed like an effective compromise. That's so funny. I feel like if they love stressful deadlines, they should try a job in breaking news. But I guess like they're making the breaking news. So I was going to say they uh, many of them would like nothing more to just constantly be breaking news. Oh, no, please don't do that. (laughs) Please. No. Okay, so if we end up back in this same position around November 17th and the government does shut down, what are the consequences? You mentioned it wouldn't be as large of scale as it would have been. So that. That depends. We don't know. So one thing that could happen between now and the middle of November is Congress is unsuccessful at passing any of its 12 appropriations bills. And we get to November 17th and still none of the appropriations bills are done. All of the federal agencies are unfunded. And then in that sense, we're basically back where we were at the end of last week. If Congress were to manage to do some of its individual bills between now and then, those agencies that are covered by whatever bills they finish, they would be protected from a shutdown. So it could be smaller in scope, or it could be like it was going to be at the end of last week, where it's just all of the agencies and all of their discretionary operations. We don't know, and we won't know until we get closer. Who would a shutdown hurt? Like if a, if a shutdown happens, who are the people that are going to feel those consequences? Most sort of immediately, we have federal workers. So there are about 2.1 million non-postal federal employees. Some of those people would keep going to work but won't get paid while there's a shutdown. And many of them will be what's called furloughed and will simply not go to work and not get paid. All of those people, um, particularly the ones who aren't working at all, provide various services that people in the American public depend on. The kinds of things that will stop happening either right away or in a week or two, depending on how long the shutdown lasts, are things like most inspections of drinking water facilities and hazardous waste sites by the EPA would stop. The FDA would continue sort of its highest risk food safety inspections, but a lot of routine inspections of like lower risk foods would stop. The Small Business Administration would stop processing new loan applications. The USDA would stop loans to farmers. The Justice Department would stop some litigation. So I could keep going on this list of the kinds of activities that would cease either immediately or within a week or two. But it's pretty clear that just from a kind of services perspective, we would get to the point where people would feel the effects pretty quickly. And let me tell you, if you want to go visit a national park, that is also a thing that I would um, be worried about your chances of doing. I think one of the things that happens when people think about federal workers is they think of, you know, just D.C., which, you know, is its own can of worms because people live here. They work here. They have livelihoods. Rent has to get paid. But it's it's not all that accurate to just be thinking of D.C. when we think of federal workers, correct? Federal workers live around the country, and that includes military personnel who are stationed around the country, but even beyond military personnel. I think it's something like uh, roughly 2% of most states 
employment is from the federal government. So, you know, there are some agencies that have big presences in certain states. The IRS has employees all over the country. The Social Security Administration has employees all over the country. It's very easy to think that we're just talking about folks who work in office buildings um, here in Washington, D.C., but the, even just talking about the federal workers piece, that piece um, is spread out all around the country as well. This could feel a little familiar to folks who maybe heard our episode about the debt ceiling and that there was a mad scramble till midnight and people were freaking out about money. But the debt ceiling and this congressional fight are very different. Tell us about the ways that they're different. So I think we can think about this in sort of two ways. One is substantively. So when we talk about the debt limit, and we talked a lot about it earlier this year, what we're talking about is whether Congress is going to pay the bills that it has previously brought upon itself. It has made decades and decades of choices about how much money to bring in, in taxes, about how much money to spend in both mandatory spending, so on things like Medicare, in discretionary spending, which is what we're talking about when we talk about the possibility of a shutdown. It's made those choices over a series of decades. It's racked up a bunch of bills. And the debt limit is about actually paying those bills, um, following through on its commitment to pay the bills it has already incurred. So in that way, it's like when you get your credit card bill, do you actually pay the bill itself? When we're talking right now about the possibility of a shutdown and about the appropriations process, we're talking about choices to spend more money in the future, so to put more things on the credit card. So the shutdown and the appropriations process is talking about future spending. The debt limit is talking about fulfilling our obligations to past spending and to past bills that Congress has racked up. Another substantive difference is the economic consequences of breaching the debt limit are much more severe than the economic consequences of a government shutdown. That's not to say that a government shutdown would be good for the economy. We have reason to believe that it would um, at least temporarily sort of shave some off our, um, our GDP. So a shutdown is not good for the economy, but it's not as bad for the economy as breaching the debt limit would be. But on the politics, this year in particular, these two things are actually linked. And I just want to sort of sketch that out because I think it's important for understanding how we got here. So in the spring, when President Biden and Speaker McCarthy reached an agreement to lift the debt limit, one of the items in that agreement were spending caps for the discretionary budget for this year. So limits on how big the pie that was going to get divided up through the appropriations process, limits on how big that pie was going to be. Pretty quickly after the House and the Senate passed and then President Biden signed that law that lifted the debt ceiling, House Republicans looked at those caps that they had agreed to as part of that law and said, you know what? We don't actually want to spend that much money. We don't want to make the pie that big. We think that pie is too big. We want it to be smaller. So we're going to start writing appropriations bills, just lower numbers than what we had agreed to with President Biden in that law. Once they started doing that, it turns out that in some cases it was hard for them to get Republican votes in the House for those lower numbers for bills written less than what the Fiscal Responsibility Act provided for. The difficulty that they had in passing their individual bills through the House, Republicans, that's part of what got us to the point in September where they had passed 
basically one of their own appropriations bills. They were in a really weak negotiating position vis-a-vis the Senate. And that's one of the things that helped generate sort of the crisis, the near miss on a shutdown. But that's a political connection between this choice that was made as part of the deal to raise the debt limit and then what Republicans ultimately did with that choice and their decision to kind of go back on that deal. And that is, again, one of the ingredients in the political soup that produced the crisis that we had. So that's the congressional drama that got us here. Up next, does it really have to be this way? Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Okay, Molly, last year you posted that you have been writing about shutdowns for over seven years. And that's a long, that's not a short amount of time. Like, (laughs) what's the history here? Like, what is the history of our government shutting down? Really key date in the history of shutdowns, 1980, and then also in 1981, when there were some legal opinions from the U.S. Department of Justice about basically what agencies could do in the absence of appropriations. And they are uh, more restrictive in telling agencies how they can spend money if there's no appropriations bill that has been passed. And so even absent the broader politics just made shutdowns more likely because it restricted how agencies could spend money. Next big sort of event in shutdown history is in the end of 1995 and the beginning of 1996. Republicans took power in the House in the 1994 midterms for the first time since the early 1950s. And in sort of a big budgetary conflict with President Clinton, there were two shutdowns, one lasting five days in November 1995, and then a longer one lasting 21 days from 1995 into 1996. This has never been done before. It is not a natural disaster. It is an unnatural disaster born of a cynical political strategy. 
We saw a long shutdown in 2013, um, in October. That one was kind of engineered by Ted Cruz and some other um, Republicans around Obamacare. That one lasted 16 days um, in October of 2013. And then in 2018, we saw a couple of events. One is in the early part of 2018, there was a, a brief shutdown connected to an effort to try and do some immigration legislation. I don't know if anyone else refers to it this way. Um, I like to refer to it as the talking stick shutdown because the negotiations in the Senate involved a meetings of a bipartisan group of senators where they passed around a talking stick about indicating whose turn it was to talk. What is a talking stick? Well, I can show it Whoa. to you. And as you can see, it's beautifully beaded. And it was very helpful in making sure that everybody's voice got heard when we were doing the discussions in my office day after day after day. That's big summer camp energy. It is big summer camp energy. And, you know, the U.S. Senate summer camp, sometimes not all that different. (laughs) They use the same thing in my kid's kindergarten class. (laughs) Now, now. But then at the end of 2018 and the beginning of 2019 is the last time we saw a long shutdown that lasted for 36 days, so a record length. And that one was the one that was brought about by a conflict related to additional funding for a wall on the southern border. At this point, budget fights and threats of a shutdown feel like a given. It also feels like a huge waste of time and also taxpayer money. So... I have to ask, why does the federal government do its budget this way? Is there is there a particular reason? It's a good question. Um, and one thing I want to just pick up on that you said that I think is important is that merely the act of threatening a shutdown and flirting with a shutdown is itself a waste of government resources. And they have to do that, whether or not the shutdown actually happens, because they need to be ready if it does. They basically need to be ready to like turn off the government, figure out who keeps working, and then figure out what to do when they turn it back on. That's money that is not, and time, perhaps most importantly, that is not being spent on other things that they could and should be doing. As to why does the government do it this way, Congress constitutionally has the power of the purse. That's one of its key constitutional responsibilities. And when we think about what could set Congress up to do that work most responsibly, I do think that there's a solid argument that Congress should, on a regular basis, revisit federal programs and say, do we need to be spending this much money on this program? Should we be spending more? Should we be spending less? What is happening in the world that means we need to adjust how much we're spending on programs as political control of the branches changes? For kind of representational reasons, we should let Congress decide whether it's controlled by Republicans or controlled by Democrats, how those majorities want to effectuate their policy priorities through the spending process. And I think that we can talk about whether like it should keep up the annual process. I tend to think so. I tend to think that, you know, the world changes fast enough, conditions change fast enough, that visiting things on an annual basis is really the right cadence, and that the problems here aren't really in the process, that they're in the politics and the way in which the appropriations process is being asked to bear a lot of political conflict that might have historically been fought out elsewhere in the legislative process. So we know that the Constitution basically lays out the fact that Congress is the one holding the checkbook. They set the budget for us. They write the checks. They decide what to do with our money. 
But is there any other legislation that kind of lays out what this process is supposed to look like? Yeah, so the process has a schedule that it's supposed to follow. And that schedule was most significantly revised for the last time almost 50 years ago. The Congressional Budget Act of 1974 uh, celebrated its 50th birthday next year. It was passed for a couple of reasons. One was in response to the Nixon administration really trying to take more and more um, spending power from Congress and Congress in really an act of like institutional patriotism that we see fewer and fewer of now on a bipartisan basis pushed back against the president and said, no, this is our constitutional responsibility. We're going to make some changes to how we do this to really make it more possible and more effective for us to fulfill that responsibility. Uh, That's the law that gives us the calendar that Congress is supposed to follow, including the various deadlines. I would say that in the 50 years that the uh, Congressional Budget Act has been around, it's never worked as great as its drafter, at least the sort of ability to keep things on schedule, has never worked as great as its drafters envisioned or had as the ideal. Congress has regularly struggled over this period of time to get its work done on time. I think over the last say two decades, the problem has gotten worse um, in terms of getting to um, the beginning of October and not having taken action. But I don't want us to hold too much of a kind of idealized past when um, everything worked great, Um, but it certainly has gotten worse uh, in recent years. Are there any other significant moments that, you know, the way we do this has changed in history? Like it could be procedural or political or, you know, maybe just the vibes are different from how they used to be when it comes to the budget. I do think the vibes are different. Um, One, I um, I mentioned before that uh, in 1994, Republicans took control of the House after Democrats having had uninterrupted control of the House um, since the early 1950s. Democrats also enjoyed uninterrupted control of the Senate from the 50s until 1980, uh, when Republicans took power in the Senate with the election of Ronald Reagan. And that kind of, I think, matters um, in two ways. So one is that when Republicans took control of the House after the 94 election, they did so on this kind of very anti-government run against Washington platform, which I think shaped some of the um, attitude towards federal spending in Congress in the period after that. But more broadly, when Republicans took control of the Senate in 1980, that sort of shifted the calculus of the two parties. It made both parties think that they could either win or lose the majority after the next election. Prior to that, everyone kind of looked at the next election and said, oh, Democrats are going to win. If we want to get anything done, it has to be through the Democratic levers of power because they're in the majority and they're going to be in the majority forever. Once we got this level of competition between the parties for partisan control, it really reshaped the big, broader negotiating environment in Congress. And I think that that has spilled over into the appropriations process. Why have we had so many shutdowns or at least threats of them? It's like people don't get anything done if there's no imminent threat of doom. Like, what's going on here? So some of that is just a sort of reality of like human psychology. When I teach about Congress to um, students, I often tell them that like this should all feel familiar to them who procrastinate all of their papers to the last minute. Like there's some of it is that. But more generally, as the legislative process has gotten more dysfunctional, as the parties have gotten more polarized, as We've entered a period of pretty narrow majorities where one party will have a majority, but it will often be with a 
pretty small margin for error. In that political environment, it's gotten harder to legislate across the board. And so Congress still has a couple of things, most notably the annual appropriations process, that it has to do every year, because if it doesn't do them, the consequences are really big. Like go back to those 2.1 non-postal federal employees and the EPA inspectors and all that stuff we were talking about before. So you might think of this like a game of whack-a-mole and Congress whacks down all the other moles because it's not going to act on other kinds of legislation. But the one mole left standing is the budget process, the annual appropriations process. And so that gets all of the conflict. And so like right now, you see it getting policy conflict. One of the reasons that the House has struggled to pass the agriculture appropriations bill is because there's a provision in there that some Republicans want that would defund the ability to send abortion medication through the mail. Like that's a policy question that's getting fought out on this appropriations bill. And then also there are these fights about Kevin McCarthy and his position within the House Republican Conference that are getting fought out in this process. And so it's just bearing all of this conflict in a way that it was never designed to, because it was designed for a world where we were doing other legislating and having other fights other places. Congress has known that this is an issue for a while, for decades even. Have they tried to fix it? They've tried. I'll just say to start at the end of the day, like it's fundamentally a question of politics and of political will. There's sort of a famous quote in budget worlds, which is not that big a place, where people say the process isn't the problem, the problem is the problem. Um, and so I think it's it's just helpful to remind us of that. What I will say is that um, a little over a decade ago in 2011, Congress passed something called the Budget Control Act that was passed as part of a deal to, spoiler alert, raise the debt limit in 2011. And what that did was it, for a whole decade, put these caps on discretionary spending. And so it said, for the next decade, these are the limits that we're going to have for the overall size of the federal pie for defense spending and the overall size of the federal pie for non-defense spending. Congress passed that. President Obama signed it. And then about two years later, Congress looked at those limits and said, no, we can't abide by those. They're too strict. We want to spend more than that. I think this is a really important illustration of the fact that like a deal is only as good as the political commitments to stick to it. In this case, it was a situation where there was bipartisan agreement that they wanted to spend more. So they reached agreement to relax those caps. In the current episode, it's that, you know, there was not political agreement in the House Republican conference to stick to the deal that McCarthy and Biden made. But when Congress decided to relax those budget caps under the Budget Control Act, they did so for two years at a time. So they did it in 2013 and again in 2015. One of the things that this did was get members of Congress in a mindset that they would have this like big fight about these big numbers first, and then the rest of the process would flow from there. And very few members of Congress have ever served in Congress before the existence of the Budget Control Act. I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but a majority of them have only been in Congress since 2011. Um, very few is probably too strong an expression. But a majority of them have only been in Congress since 2011. So they don't really know how the process was designed to work because they've never experienced it in kind of functional, more idealized way. Okay, so Congress has tried fixing their own problems before, but that clearly hasn't worked. So where do we go from here? That's coming up after the break. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. 
As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. It's the Weeds. I'm John Glenn Hill, and I'm here with Molly Reynolds, and we've been talking all about the no good, very bad federal budgeting process. I'm an optimist, Molly, so I think there is room for hope, at least, you know, or else uh, that's how I got to live or else who knows what I'd be doing. What are some potential solutions to this? It feels like almost annual budget fight. One of the most frequently offered solutions to this situation would be legislation that would automatically adopt a continuing resolution if we get to the point where the regular appropriations bills run out and Congress hadn't acted. So we talk about these as automatic continuing resolutions. We heard a lot of talk of that possibility in 2019 after the end of that shutdown. That would certainly help solve one very specific dimension of this problem. It's not clear to me that it would actually incentivize members to get their work done in a more timely fashion, because particularly if you are a person who wants government spending to be less, you might actually be okay with just having it continue at the previous year's levels and never have an opportunity to go up. Would adjusting for inflation help with that issue at all? Or is it kind of like we got to assess as we go? It could. You could have the automatic continuing resolution be like last year's levels plus some adjustment for inflation. That would be one way to address one of my concerns about it. But I think, again, at the end of the day, like this is a constitutional responsibility of the United States Congress. And I think we should be trying to set them up for success and fulfilling that responsibility more than we should be trying to figure out like what clever backstops can we create to help them avoid doing what they're supposed to be doing. Another idea would be to do all of this process every two years instead of every year. Some states do it this way. They make decisions on their budgets every two years. As I said earlier, I can see why that's an attractive idea. I tend to think that you know, the realities of the policymaking process and the policy challenges facing the country mean that Congress should visit these questions every year. And it's also not clear to me that the dysfunction that we're experiencing on an annual basis now would be less if we did this 
for every two years. It's I, a different way to say that is it's not clear to me that time is the only problem. <laughs> the last thing that I'll note is that you will sometimes hear proposals that are meant to try and like incentivize Congress to get its work done. Um, one of these involves not paying members of Congress if they haven't adopted their appropriations bills or like not letting them go home for the August recess if they haven't adopted their appropriations bills. Number one, it's really hard to get those things to stick unless everyone actually wants them to stick. And in the case of member pay, that's uh, kind of constitutionally suspect. So um, the 27th Amendment says that members can't change their own pay in the same session. So like any change in member pay has to take effect after the next election. And so their pay cannot be completely withheld. I do think that some members have arranged to have their pay deferred until the end of a shutdown so that like they are not getting paychecks while their constituents who might be federal employees are not. But again, fundamentally, like I don't think the problem would be solved by not paying members. I think the problem is in the politics and what incentivizes members to hold out throughout this process. What's your personal favorite idea to solve this problem other than, you know, locking, I guess, all the members of Congress in a room together and making them do trust falls so that they act right? Like what? what's the solution? <laughs> There are two sort of process-oriented things that I think could help. They're not magic. Um, Nothing here is magic. I talked before about the annual appropriations bills. Congress is supposed to, earlier in the year, kind of sit down and decide what the overall size of the pie is going to be. And they're supposed to do that through something called the budget resolution. And then that pie gets divided up and actually allocated and pushed out the door via the appropriations bills. I think you could probably decide the overall size of the pie on a two-year basis. I think that would be okay. And then in the second year, you would not have to go back all the way to the, the very beginning and have that like big negotiation over the size of the pie. You would have already decided that in the previous year. And then you could get the appropriations process moving more quickly. The other thing that I would say is we have these 12 bills. The part of the process where the bills are actually getting written in committee still works reasonably well. Like we still have members who kind of specialize in particular areas who get really knowledgeable about the appropriations bill in their area, take a lot of testimony from administration witnesses about where the money should be going. I think that part still works pretty well. And where it's gotten a lot harder is the part where you actually bring the bills to the floor. And so we have seen in the last several years, we were talking about the omnibus before, we've seen Congress experiment with something that folks cutely call minibuses, (laughs) which is to say that instead of putting all 12 of those train cars together, you say put two of them together or three of them together and package them and then send that to the floor. And I like that idea. It preserves one of the most important parts to me of the process, which is like the building the expertise and the deliberation on the front end. And then it kind of meets Congress where it's at in terms of the political challenges of moving things on the floor. And it allows you to sort of package and log roll across different issues. So before I was saying that in 2018, we had only a partial shutdown. Um, Not all agencies were affected. And one of the reasons that was true was because in September um, of 2018, Congress took the defense appropriations bill and the bill funding the Departments of Labor, Health and Human Services, and Education, so something that is often important to Republicans and something that is often important to Democrats, and put them together 
um, into one big bill and said, okay, we're sending this to the floor and Republicans who want the defense budget, we're going to dare you to vote against it. Democrats who want the funding for these social programs, we're going to dare you to vote against this. And that sort of allowed for like a really important act of coalition building. So I think that getting away from this idea that like we have to do 12 bills on the floor because there's something magical about 12, um, I think is part of where I see some promise. I am wondering, and I realize this is very chaotic, uh, but, you know, sometimes you got to be a chaos agent. Could the federal government just ignore the shutdown and just, like, keep going? I mentioned before these legal opinions from the Justice Department in the 1980s, and they are uh, interpretations of something called the Anti-Deficiency Act. And basically... The like short version is that those interpretations, they make it really hard for federal agencies to just keep going in the absence of appropriations legally, not to mention the fact that like at some point you would actually run out of money. So uh, both of those things are limiting factors here. Okay, so Molly, we have averted the shutdown for now. And I'm wondering what you're going to have your eye on and what you'll be watching over the next several weeks as we gear up for, honestly, another battle over the budget. Yeah. So I'll say a couple of things. So one, probably most immediately, is this question of what happens to Kevin McCarthy. It is becoming increasingly clear who the Speaker of the House already works for, and it's not the Republican conference. The second thing I'll be watching is whether they can get any of those individual spending bills done between now and mid-November. Um, that would, if there is ultimately an, a shutdown in mid-November, that would, again, lessen that pain a little bit. The third thing I'll be watching is kind of how do negotiations between the House and the Senate generally over these spending bills go between now and mid-November. The typical way that the appropriations process has unfolded in recent years, even without the kind of acute shutdown politics that we've been experiencing, is that Congress misses the October 1st deadline. They have some sort of continuing resolution to buy themselves some time. And then there's some ultimate big omnibus spending bill that resolves some or all of the appropriations bills altogether in December. And I think many people think that's probably still where we're headed. But getting to that point requires a lot of intense negotiations between the House and the Senate. So we'll know a lot more in the coming weeks about how those negotiations are going and whether we might actually get to that place it can be hard for Congress to get there by the middle of November, but might they get close and then buy themselves a couple more weeks? I don't know. We'll see. But those are the kinds of things that I'm watching. All right, Molly Reynolds, thanks so much for joining me. And with any luck, we will not be having this conversation again in November. It was a pleasure, but we should all be very happy if I don't return to the podcast in November. That's all for us today. Thank you to Molly Reynolds for joining us. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Chris Nyala engineered this episode. Laura Bullard and Serena Solon fact-checked it. Our editorial director is A.M. Hall. And I'm your host, John Glenn Hill. This podcast is part of Vox, which doesn't have a paywall. Help us keep it that way by going to vox.com give. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously, hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. 
Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.